This week, our guests are Dr. Susan K. Williams, Chief Executive, and Dr. Isabella Rosner, Curator at the Royal School of Needlework. Our topic is the exciting new effort to digitize the entire RSN collection. The show is sponsored by Sassy Jack Stitchery, your source for all of the new charts from the Nashville market. If you didn't pre-order, Kim will have in stock or will be able to quickly order any of the new charts introduced in Nashville. While she's shipping out those Nashville orders, she'll also be in the process of stocking shelves and racks in the new store. Yes, that's right. The Baird House is finally finished and charts, threads, ground cloth, and everything else you need for your needlework activities will soon be in the store so shopping can begin. Keep up to date by following the Sassy Jacks Facebook group or by subscribing to the Sassy Jacks newsletter. While you're at sassyjackstitchery.com, sign up for the Cosmo Thread Club and join the Sassy Jacks Customer Loyalty Club. Use Cosmo Threads to stitch your new charts and add to your stitching fun with the many benefits of the Loyalty Club. Thanks to the folks at Sassy Jacks for sponsoring this show with Susan K. Williams and Isabella Rosner. And now let's learn about how we'll all soon be able to explore the RSN collection. Welcome back. I'm Gary Parr. And I'm Beth Ellicott. And you're listening to Fiber Talk, the twice-weekly podcast for needlework artists. Artists this week, actually two of them, from the Royal School of Needlework, the good doctor, Susan K. Williams, chief executive. Hi, Susan. Hi, Gary. This is getting to be a habit, I'm, uh, but I, I'm, in, I'm thoroughly enjoying it, but it's really getting to be a habit, so we need to keep it going. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And, always delighted to be here. Yep. Well, it's always a treat. And then uh, also with us, uh, curator at the Royal School, Dr. Isabella Rosner, new doctor. Isabella. New doctor. Thank you both for having me. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Beth. I'm really excited about our conversation. Yeah. Oh, congratulations on the uh, new title. That's fantastic. Thank you. It yep. feels fresh. I hope it will always feel fresh. <laughs> I'm sure you worked hard enough at it that, uh, that yeah, the freshness will last a while. Yep. Fingers crossed. Yep. All right. So our topic today is a, a new project that the Royal School is doing, digitizing the Royal School collection. And I should have said a new monumental project because I'm quite sure that's what it is. Um, uh, Susan, w- when we talk about digitizing the Royal School collection, you know, that's huge. But it seems to me that this is a part of a real effort to have more uh, connections, more outreach from the Royal School to make it more accessible uh, globally. Is that, uh, is that a safe thing to say? It, it absolutely is, Gary. That's been our objective for this from the beginning, that um, really our collection is so unknown because it's hidden away in conservation boxes and cupboards. And whilst we t- we try and bring out a little bit for exhibitions now and again, uh, the majority is hidden away. And, and it's absolutely fascinating. So we've been raising money for a, a long while now um, to be able to make this project a reality. And we are on the cusp of being able to launch um, the first 100 objects, um, which will be from both the collection and the archive. 
um, because um, we, we want to factor both of those things in. Uh, but they're not our hundred best objects or our most fantastic or our oldest, but rather to show the variety of what we've got, because um, everything in the RSN collection has been donated. Uh, we, we're a non-profit. We don't have the money to go out and purchase things. Um, so we rely on people offering us pieces. And this has made it an incredibly eclectic collection. Um, and we have so many different types of embroidery, um, some going back to certainly the 15th, 16th century. Uh, and then we have some other pieces in different techniques that are even older. Um, but the vast majority is um, kind of 19th, 20th century. Uh, but again, really very varied. Uh, and that's what makes it special because we notice that some of the pieces have come to us um, in a will. So when people have left them and often they'll, they'll say they're thinking that they're leaving their best pieces to organisations like the, the V&A, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and then they give us the remainder. Yeah. But you know, we're quite happy to have those pieces because they are more varied very often. Um, and they, so they give us a broader range of things that perhaps aren't um, available in the major museums because they have only taken certain types of things. Um, whereas we take things on the basis of the quality of the embroidery. Although it is quite, uh, quite amusing. A few years ago, I was in Toronto. I'd gone there to give a, a talk and I was taken to the textile museum. And while I was there, the curator was alerted to my being there and she came out to see me. And she said, oh, we've got a piece and it's ostensibly by somebody who was trained at the Royal School of Needlework. And, and we're potentially going to be offered this piece. Would you have a look at it? So I went and had a look at it and I could see immediately it was excellent embroidery. Um, but it wasn't a piece that had been done as part of the course that they would have done in the training school. And I said so. And the, the lady from Toronto said to me, well, we might have to turn it down then if we don't have full provenance. And I said, and I rather laughed because I said, if I took that attitude, we'd have almost nothing in our collection, <laughs> you know, because many things come to us given, you know, from a will and nobody knows much about them. Um, so it is purely on the quality of the embroidery itself um, that makes us want to keep them. Uh, and that, as I say, that really has given us a much broader uh, range of objects that, than would otherwise be the case. Yeah. Okay, let's go, folks. Best stuff goes to the Royal School. Come on. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. What's that all about? Yeah. Right, um, right. But, but Susan, now, it, it, as a nonprofit and then taking in all of these from all facets of the world, there must be things that you at this juncture would like to have. And then there's got to be some types of tapestry and needlework that, hey, folks, we got enough. Mm. Yes, that, that, that's very true. I mean, my personal thing would be an 18th, well, I'd, I'd like an 18th century gentleman's full suit. 
That's jacket, waistcoat and breeches. That would be absolutely stunning. But I'd settle for a coat. We have some Mm. waistcoats, some really interesting waistcoats, but we don't have a jacket at all. Mm. Um, So that would be one of my kind of top five things that I would really like for the collection. Whereas um, canvas work, you know, needlepoint, as it's often called in the States, Frankly, we have enough. It would have to be something very special indeed for us to um, to take that. Uh, we, you know, we have many examples already. Um, so, but um, the thing, one of the things that we almost always take are samplers, because you know, samplers are all made by individuals. Of course, many of them are dated and they are named. Um, and that makes them, them interesting and, and it helps to, you know, keep that person alive, if you like. Um, and then sometimes we can find that ones that I've accepted are actually uh, more interesting than we'd originally realized. Uh, and that's some of what Isabella has been doing, looking at some of the pieces that we've got and um, to realize that this is, this is not just any old sampler. This might be the oldest of a particular type or mm-hmm. uh, this might be a more unusual one. Uh, and, and that's always that's always fascinating. Yeah, we were just having a conversation. Uh, well, last Sunday with Kathy Andrews and then Beth and I were uh, uh, on t- uh, Wednesday show this week about samplers. And of course, we always lean on the, the little girls that made them. But the history behind them in terms of the motifs where they came mm. from, how they moved through time and, and from community to community and even across the ocean. And uh, there's there's so much more to those than just uh, a, a bunch of bands and a bunch of stitches and, and a little girl behind them. There's so much history to, and so much that can be learned that fits in the greater context. Absolutely. Samplers I view as microcosms of the entire world. They're wonderful tools through which to study history, not only because they are genealogical documents. You have a girl's name, her age, the year, and maybe her teacher's name. You have all of this information about who she was and where she was. But also you can understand her her world, the access to materials she had, perhaps her favorite colors, what was happening in terms of the migration of people and images and pattern books. I my love, my first love when it comes to embroidery is samplers. And I think it's because with each object, you get a glimpse into an entire world. Yeah. And we also have one of the fascinating things is we have two samplers from 1904 and 1905 that were from the same school. They Mm -hmm. came to us at different times from different sources, but it's absolutely fascinating then to see those because Perhaps some of the assessments and judgments that one made the first time are different when one sees a second one, because these are incredibly long samplers. The longest of the two is um, over 12 feet long. Um, and it's, yeah, and it's about, wow. it's about um, uh, eight inches wide um, and it's lots of segments. And so some of it is stitched work, some of it is just sewing, some of it is then embroidered in different ways and connected together with bits of lace, perhaps, or um, other um, elements. And then and then it's all been encased in a backing fabric mm. uh, of a particular colour and style. And 
you think, oh, this is a real one-off. But then the longest one, she runs out of this backing fabric. Uh, and that's the one that we had first. Uh, and that was such a splendid one that she won a prize for it. So, and we've still got the certificate that she got for right. that. Wow. And, and then wow. the... And then we got this other one in and that says, hang on a minute. Um, it's got the same backing fabric. She likewise has chosen two colours. So actually, it wasn't the first one making that decision. But clearly the teacher said to them, you only choose mm. two colours to do your sampler. Oh. Um, and, and again, the pattern and the, the way in which it's been done. So it, th that's also fascinating and so rare to have ones that are exactly from the same place. Yeah. You know, we know about some of the Quaker ones, Ackworth, mm. et cetera, where there are quite a number from the same place. But to be from what I'd describe as a sort of ordinary primary school um, in South London, um, absolutely fascinating to see these. Yeah, and there are multiple examples of that in this collection. I think that unearthing people having access to these samplers will really help those who are interested in them more fully understand the world of samplers and which girls were going to the same schools and where they were being taught. There is half a sampler that is in the Grove book, which is a large scale book. I'm sure Susan has talked to you about it before that includes a wide selection of textiles from all over the world. And one of the objects is this 18th century English sampler. She writes in it English 18th century, but it is an almost exact match to a sampler that's in the Victoria and Albert Museum made by a girl who was a Quaker named Grace Catlin in 1719. And because the two are nearly identical, we know exactly where this girl was from the Grove book. We know that she was a Quaker. We know that she was in London. We know that she was making her sampler around 1719. So we're getting all of this helpful information because of other samplers that survive in the world and this once anonymous girl becomes a lot less anonymous all of a sudden because we can connect the story of two classmates being reunited once again right oh see that's that's the fun that's the absolute fun yep yeah it is it, it certainly is and also to realize that there's no kind of straight line progression in terms of skills or materials from the very earliest samplers through to the much later ones. So we've got ones from one from 1731, which is a beautiful sampler. And it's got a very 18th century border of flowers um, with each petal in a different shade. Um, so, you know, very nicely worked. Um, and then we've got um, another one from, from the 1890s that, frankly, looks like the backing, the, the, the core material, the ground fabric is from a sack. You know, and so clearly it's very different indeed. And, um, you know, somebody who's slightly older, who's using the materials that's available, um, you know, so probably from a completely different class to, to have these much more down market materials. So in between, there are so many different um, variations on the quality, not just of the stitching, but of the materials that they're using and the different ages at which um, people are doing the samplers. Mm. So, you know, the earliest are people around seven or eight. Um, when we get to map samplers and things like that, it's probably people around 10. Um, but then you start getting these that say that they're slightly older. And almost all of those, it's a much more kind of down market production. Mm. Uh, and you think, yeah, they're ones who didn't have time off. They had to be helping out with the family all the time. And stitching was something that they got to a little bit later. Um, and um, 
uh, and also the materials that they had to hand that they just had to use what was available, you know, an old sack or something. Right, right. Oh, Isabella, I can tell right now the self-discipline as you work on this digitization project is going to be actually working on the digitalization part and not yes. not going off in some corner with a pile of samplers. <laughs> it's brutal. I have barely touched the sampler boxes because I know that they're going to just wreck me. I'm going to be deep in the sampler world for months and months, and that's not a very good use of my time. I am being, I would like to think, very strategic in order to um, do thorough research, but also minimize the amount of time I'm just squealing over a piece of fabric, really. <laughs> yeah, so we've had to, put, had to put in place deadlines for things so that um, we, we balance between um, going off and researching interesting pieces uh, and kind of getting some more of them. Because we know that there's always the case that you can, however much research you try to do, you can put it up on the on the website and people will come back with more. But then that mm-hmm. we're going to be excited about that. And that's a great opportunity because we cannot possibly know everything about everything. And um, just making people aware of some of the range of what we got, I think will be really exciting. Yeah. And I should say that a lot of the labor, a lot of the in-depth research that's happening is not just me. I don't physically have time to do all of that. I owe a lot of it to my wonderful team of volunteers. I have 10 volunteers in the collection side of things who are helping to catalog and photograph and research all of these items. And it's because of them that we can get through as much as we do. But I, as Susan says, I'm really looking forward to hearing from people about things that we get right, things that we get wrong, things that um, are actually out there in the world that match certain items that we have in the collection. We have a specific collections uh, email address that people can contact us on. And we have an Instagram page that also simultaneously gives people a a kind of insight into what we're looking at every day while also giving them an opportunity to contact us and say, hey, that looks a lot like this one thing that I have in my house or that I saw at at that museum. I'm hoping that the knowledge exchange is indeed a two-way street. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Susan, the uh, uh, projects like this cost real money. Um, I assume they certainly more, do. I assume you're more than happy to have people contribute uh, actual dollars or pounds or oh, whatever. Oh, ab- absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And um, yeah, you can go to the the RSN website, and if you're from America. Um, you can even do it through our website, but it will take you off whereby you can do it and you get your tax um, recognition as well for your donation. So even better. Um, but, um, yeah, it, because um, pieces in the collection never stop coming. As I'm mm-hmm. sitting here, I am looking at this table in my office, huh. which is now covered over in its entirety to a entirety to a height of about two feet mm-hmm. with um, new things that have been sent to us in the last year, six months to a year. Um, and we're constantly having things come and um, we need, to, I need to start moving some of them on um, and just saying whether we're going to accession them or not. And um, uh, because, you know, some of them are absolutely exquisite embroidery others slightly less so, but they have a purpose and a record for us. For example, um, there's a little cushion and the cushion is a tiny bit grubby, but it has on it a stitched regimental insignia from the time of the Second World War. 
And at that time, the RSN made um, put down kits for um, all regiments to be able to stitch, first of all, the British regiments and then all the allied forces. Um, so we created these kits. Uh, we stitched initial samples, but they were all sent away to be photographed and used for the production of the kits. And we have none left. So this is the first time we, we have some of the um, transfers, but this is the first time we've actually had a stitched version that's come into the collection. So for things like that, you know, I'll definitely accept something like that because it, it's rare and we don't have another example. Um, okay, well, I got to ask a question here. So those were sent out and just into anybody stitched them for their regiment. You, you could you could purchase them. And um, in the very first edition of Needlewoman and Needlecraft magazine, um, it had the first six and it's it's gave examples that people might want to stitch this at home. Uh, and they could, for example, do it as a cover for the Radio Times, which was a <laughs> weekly publication for what programs were coming up on the radio um, in the following week. Um, but we also know that they were used by the Red Cross and, and given to prisoners of war, mm. uh, again, as things to do for pastimes to do while a prisoners of war. Um, so they were used extensively. And whilst the earliest ones did have these pictures, colour pictures of what the finished insignia should look like, as we grow, grew and, and did all the ones for the new regiments and the allied regiments, um, they didn't actually have a, a coloured picture on the front. They just had the transfer and the instructions that you had to go from. Um, so, so yes, the, there were a, a lot of the different uh, units. And as I say, many we've now got many sample packs of the little kits that were sent out. Um, but the first time we've, we've had a, a finished example. <laughs> Well, that is just fascinating because, you know, you think of all the history there, you know, you've got prisoner of war, you've got yeah. all the regiments. Mm. I, I, that's quite a bunny trail. That. Yeah, that's amazing. I had no idea about the RSN's connection to this because one of my favorite objects of all time is an embroidered sampler made by a prisoner of war, a British prisoner of war in Germany in December of 1941. Do you know about A.T. Castagli? My favorite. I love him. He um, uh, basically stole a fellow prisoner of war's jumper and unraveled it to create threads. And he taught himself how to cross stitch. And he made this sampler that on the surface looks very gentle. It has an inscription that says his name and where he is and when it is December of 1941. And it has all of these national symbols of the various powers fighting in the war. But what you don't know, unless you happen to know Morse code, is that he is embroidering um, several sentiments in Morse code, one of which is God save the king, and another one of which is very choice words about Hitler. Um, <laughs> that I won't say here because I, I don't think that's the right tone for this podcast. But I didn't <laughs> even realize the connection between the RSN and prisoners of war stitching. Mm -hmm. <gasps> I love it. A day of learning. So fun. <laughs> Okay, lame TV host question. Do you know what the oldest piece is in the collection? Yes, yes. At this point in time, yes. The oldest piece in the collection is a Coptic weaving that is part of the Grove book, that very special book of textiles from around the world. And I'm estimating it to be between about the 7th and 8th century. And it's mm. this tiny little roundel with figures 
that look honestly like they're fresh out of, out of an anime. They have these big eyes and these big hands and feet, and they're all pointing at each other. And um, in one of the earliest sessions for my volunteers, one of the volunteers was tasked with researching it. And she said, I think it might actually represent uh, David holding Goliath's head. And I think she might be right. And I think that is a fascinating thing because it makes me think that the imagery that the Coptic Egyptians were using to kind of identify with these biblical stories is very different to our imagery, but there's something so deeply human about it. They have these big eyes and these pointing fingers and these gigantic feet. And even though it's been more than a thousand years since this one person weaved this thing, wove this thing, we can still feel that kind of universal humanity. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the pointing fingers are very long and the, the toes are very big but because it's, it's a very small piece. Mm-hmm. It's only about um, what, four and a half, five inches. I'll tell you that, yeah. And um, 13 centimeters wide. I don't even know how many that is in inches. I am six, fully assimilated into this six, country. Six inches. Yeah. 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 It's really small. And um, it's um, I think it's the fact that when you've got to get five individual toes, there's no way you can make them really small. So feet always look bigger if people have got bare feet. Um, and, and if you're wanting to identify that they are pointing with a finger, again, it always looks much bigger because um, just try, it's almost impossible to make it smaller and make it look as though it, it's standing out. So yeah. the, the, there are those aspects to it. It's such a fun piece. I love that Susan and I are just standing, sitting here and every time we talk about the pointed fingers, we're putting up like finger guns. Yeah. It's quite fun over here. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, all right, Isabella, uh, mm. help, help us help us understand what this whole project entails. What uh, what are you doing mm. with the pieces? How are you going to present them? What, is is there a bunch of research that has to be done for each piece, or do you pretty much know what you have? Take us through what your what the the project entails. It is a journey. So, as Susan says, we're starting with these first one hundred objects and archive documents. So we're having at this point 88 objects and 12 pieces from the archive, which represent the breadth and depth of the collection. And they're, to say they're chosen at random is not correct. They're chosen with an eye towards variety. But Susan is right when she says that they're not the, the super treasures of this collection. They are amazing and unique and oftentimes very mysterious. But most importantly, they tell us kind of all sorts of objects that are in this collection, all the different techniques, the different types of objects themselves, different time periods and places. So choosing the first 100 has involved kind of having an eye towards that variety. Once an object is chosen, I will photograph it or one of my volunteers will photograph it in our lovely new little photography studio. We then process the image and put it onto our collections management system. And that system is called Collections Index Plus. We put it on to there and then we start cataloging. So we have everything from uh, the object number to the dimensions to the maker to a very, very lengthy description. We're trying to be as thorough as possible when it comes to describing these objects and their larger historical context, especially because we know that this collection will be looked at by a lot of stitchers. So we're very mindful about including the names of all of the materials that are being used, as well as all of the stitches. So in addition to having this kind of overall written description, 
We then have lists of motifs, of stitches, and of materials. So people can click on, say, uh, silk thread and see every other piece in the collection that's been cataloged that also involves silk thread. Same with the motifs. And when it comes to the stitches, you can click on chain stitch, for example, and get to everything that has a chain stitch in it. But additionally, you will be able to click a little button next to that, which has the stitch bank symbol, and it will take you to the stitch bank page. So I talk about this like we are building the Royal School of Needlework multiverse, and it's various parts, branches of the RSN coming together. And it means that we can give people a very thorough overview of the object they're looking at. They can zoom in themselves to see these high quality images. We'll have, of course, an overall image and a bunch of kind of individual little details. Um, and this will be on a website that's publicly available. So it's a website that's built by Collections Index Plus. It will be Royal School of Needlework branded. And it means that anybody anywhere in the world can go to the collection for free and see what we have and so we'll start by launching this first 100 just after Easter. And then from there, we will, as we continue to catalog, we'll kind of upload things in batches. So maybe once a month or so, you get a batch of 30 objects or something like that to surprise you all the time. Um, and additionally, we're going to have blog posts. I have two blog posts at the ready from some very keen volunteers to give some historical context for some of the objects in the collection. These are objects that they were researching and that they just loved. They started kind of digging really deep into the history of the objects and they have a lot to say about them. So I'm really, really excited to share this with the world. I think that it's an incredibly rare opportunity for people to come face to face with a collection they did not even know existed, especially when that collection is a very largely embroidery based. Yeah. This is, Okay. I can't help but feel that this is a kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for people. Right. I'm going to back up your truck a little bit here, Isabella. This sounds to me okay. like as, as you develop this thing, it's going to become a powerful research tool. Mm. Very much so, yes. And it's important that we are academically rigorous in our descriptions, that we can describe an object in great detail, but can also provide the context in which an object was made. So for example, there's this very intriguing jacket that we have as part of the first 100 that um, is very kind of 1870s in shape. It's clearly built for a bustle. It has these large sleeves. It's very kind of European style in the 1870s, but it's covered in pieces of Indian embroidery. And that is an important thing to recognize that this object, and it's one of many in the collection, that blends together different parts of the world, different aesthetics happening at the same time, that we don't want people to have to guess at what they're looking at. So we are doing as much as we can to do the research to provide them with our, if we don't have answers, with our best theories. Because as Susan says, most of these objects don't have any provenance information we don't know what these objects were or sometimes when they were so it's this really enjoyable and kind of fascinating and unexpected research journey most of the time because we have to take this object and sometimes it has a century and sometimes it has a place but we have to do a lot of work to fill in the gaps and it's really important to me that we can fill in the gaps as thoroughly as possible so people can then kind of take that as a starting point and then jump off from there. Mm -hmm. Is 
conservation uh, part of this, or has that already been done once they're put into the collection? No, no, conservation has not yet been done. Okay. And in fact, Isabella and I were just talking about that, that mm. some of the pieces, as we get them out, we are looking and then saying, you know, perhaps they might need some conservation. Um, and for that, we'll look at whether we can do that through our studio. Um, and sometimes it's not about the piece, it's more about how it's, it's framed. And then you have that very difficult discussion about, is it worth taking it out of the frame or <laughs> do we have to somehow enhance the frame to make it be able to stay? Mm. Because with some of them, you cannot see how they are mounted and therefore it's kind of, um, uh, you know, cross your fingers when you would take them out. Right. Um, and, and that might make it worse rather than better. So, um, yeah, it's not always an easy decision about what might be needed um but we're just we're just having um keeping a list of what could uh, benefit from some conservation yeah. um and then look to see if the, if that's something that um can be done in the studio rusty nails and animal glue, glue. yeah mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yes all of that oh and plenty more yes <laughs> uh, and, fr and frames that um where the backing paper has all become detached and um, uh, again, allowing in more bugs right. and um, things like that. Yeah, right. now, it's interesting to me a project of this magnitude, the uh, the how the fingers get into other aspects of the operation uh, when, when it comes to the stitch bank and research mm. and mm. conservation. Uh, it really, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of that is it all comes into play more than ever, just because you're you're trying to put this database of of uh, pieces together. Yeah, it's really fun actually seeing how many people I get in contact with every day in this organization just by researching these objects. So, you know, I'll be in touch with Anne to talk about things in the studio. I'll be in, I'll be in touch with the Stitch Bank folks to ask them, hey, this is like a pretty weird stitch. What do you think about this? Every week I am in the Stitch Bank inbox being like, um, thoughts, guys? It's really, <laughs> I don't know if they would have expected it to be so collaborative, but I have forced them into collaboration. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I can imagine. No, but but that's, uh, it's neat on several fronts. I mean, one, it, it, it draws uh, people from all aspects of the Royal School together and you never know where where the next answer is going to come from when when that's at play, and uh, uh, on top of that, you're you're building up something that is going to have global impact in terms of people's understanding of of needlework. So it's um, we certainly are because it's such a broad range of, of pieces and techniques um, that it will just be be fascinating as as we grow the numbers of objects that are on the website. Um, I think people will be fascinated, um, not least because to go up onto the website, we'll have done the photography and um, it won't be like some collections where you, mm. you, you search for something and everything comes up, but there are no pictures. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, they haven't quite got round to it yet. So, we, you know, we're starting with the photograph um, and then um, putting the rest of the story together. Is this project something that I assume uh, there's been a desire to have this in some form or another for many, many years, but is it uh, the stitch bank? Has that kind of opened the vision in terms of technology and what you can do that's, that's kind of uh, prompted this along or has it kind of no, been on its own path? 
yeah, to, to for for um, really the two things have been around about the same length of time. We we first thought about these and kind of put them into the strategic plan about a decade ago. So you know, it is it is about time that we got on with them. <laughs> um, but um, no, we've we've long wanted to do this because you know I I feel bad. I mean, let me give you an example. When it was lockdown, um, our degree students, before they were sent home, were allowed to have a look and physically touch a piece from the handling collection. And they had to look at this piece and take photographs of it uh, and different pieces for each student and, um, uh, and then go away and research it. And I was um, asked to do the assessment of the, of these um, written pieces at the end. And one of them, she'd got some fragments from um, a, a, an envelope case. And, and the minute I saw the pieces, I knew what they were from. I knew when they were from. Uh, they were probably sent uh, with a formal greeting inside to Queen Victoria in her role as Empress of India mm. um, in the late 19th century. And, um, and we have about half a dozen of these, um, some of which have been cut up a bit, but some are in wonderful condition in the collection. But this student, much though she looked online, couldn't find the exact kind of thing because she wasn't sure what she was looking for and um, you know didn't know. And of course, the ones that we had weren't online at that time. And so there was, you know, no opportunity for her to know what was in the collection. So when the students finally came back, um, I then invited her over to come and see what they actually looked like. Um, but it would have been so much better if she'd have been able to look in, in the first place and, and see these things online. So for students, I think this will be incredibly important. But just for people generally interested in textiles and in, in embroidery to be able to have a look. And from the archive side, um, we're, we're starting with the in the hundred with some of our design cards that, that were done in the 1870s, 1880s. And these design cards, um, these were sent out to ladies at home and they could make selections of ideas that they would like. Um, and we could either do the work for them or do it as what was known as prepared work, which today would be called making a kit for them. <laughs> and um, so they'll see some of those. But then the next phase for the archive will be to start putting online some of our registers, because the question we get asked most is did my mother, my grandmother, my maiden aunt train or, or work at the Royal School of Needlework? Yeah. <laughs> and we haven't got the time to go through all the books, um, but we'll certainly be able to put those on from the first 50, 70 years, something like that. And um, people will then be able to um, have a look for themselves. Um, so, th so that's one of the next things that we want to get on with. Yeah. I'm thinking how powerful this this uh, collection, uh, digitized collection, is going to be for uh, uh, you know, university students to do research. But then I think about, the, uh, for instance, the American Needlepoint Guild or the uh, EGA and, and their master's programs that require research, have to write a paper. This is going to become a, a powerful resource for people doing that kind of work. 
I think we hope so. <laughs> we definitely hope so. And we'll be encouraging them to come and have a look. Mm. Um, and, you know, if they can tell us more about some of our pieces, that'll be terrific. Yeah. Now, uh, free to everyone, just go to a, a URL on your website and have at it. Or is we're going to absolutely or yes when, when we launch it, which will be mid-April, um, you'll be able to just go to our website, which is you know, royal-needlework.org.uk, and um, it will then direct you, and you just be able to click a button mm-hmm. through to it and um, be able to, to see it all. And as I say, it will build over time. Again, like Stitch Bank, we will keep adding more and more pieces to it um, to just give the, the variety. Um, and although I have said to Isabella, at some point we'll have to get um, focused and perhaps take <laughs> one, one whole box yeah. from the uh, from our store uh, and just work the way through the box. Um, now, as it happens, the original numbering of our boxes is uh, it's wayward. I think is the only description <laughs> for it <laughs> because white work is all letter A. A for apple. No, not, you know, you think that makes no sense. And um, (laughs) handkerchiefs are box T. I think the only one that is an an appropriate box letter is P for purses. All the others have just um, (laughs) nonsensical letters, you know. But um, and, and actually the largest part of the collection is white work because we have white work for babies, for children, caps. We have accessories, we have tableware, we have bed linens. Um, so, however, we're not going to just go straight for white work. So we might do a box of white work mm. and then a box of something completely different um, so that there's variety coming through all the time. Yeah. That is definitely my plan. Once I get this next part of the project done, it'll be everybody will experience a treat of many pieces of white work and then many pieces of something else and then some more white work. Mostly so we don't get too bored of white work after white work piece. Uh, the volunteers can keep fresh. And so the audience can continue to be excited as well. And maybe eventually every time there is a new white work box that goes online, people will actually be really looking forward to it. More white work. We want more white work. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the people will be saying. <laughs> So people will be able to um, send you comments about pieces then once they look at them and say, hey, I have something similar to that in my home. How would they go about doing that? Would that be on the page itself or would they send you a separate email? They would send us a separate email. Our email is, I think, it's collections at royal-needlework.org.uk, but I'm going to check right now to tell you. Um, (laughs) And then we also have an Instagram page that allows people to message us, and that's Royal Needlework Collection, all one word. Um, So people people can tell us whatever. I would love to hear... I hope not exclusively criticism, but um, I, I want to hear about people having ideas and similar objects and, oh, they've seen something on this website and, oh, doesn't that remind you of this thing? Or I think you got the stitch wrong here. Or isn't that a variation on that? That sort of stuff. And it is collection at royal-needlework.org.uk. And my inbox is currently empty. So please email me. <laughs> And that's collections with an S or or single collection, single no collection. S. 
I just want to, I'm triple checking because now I'm, it, see the inbox is so empty. I haven't used it since June when I was first setting it up. Collection. Yes. Collection. Single collection. Okay. All right. I'll put that in the, in the show notes. And Thank Beth, you. Beth hits on, on, on a key thing. This is, is just a, a, a ripe for communication from your end, but also I can see other people uh, starting communication devices based on the information in the in the uh, collection dig- digitized collection. What, mm-hmm. Give me give us a little bit more about how you are planning to communicate what's in the thing and to set up a dialogue with Stitchers. I think that I would really really welcome feedback from people both out the RSN and far outside of it because. As somebody who spends all of her time on museum websites, I oftentimes get frustrated that I can't contact somebody asking for more information or saying, hey, there's a typo here or, hey, that's not right at all. I I think that there will be promotion across all sorts of RSN platforms when this is launched. So it'll be on the social media pages. It'll be on the website. It'll be in the e-news. We'll be posting it on our own Instagram page. I hope that people know about it. And I also hope that there's word of mouth about this in the same way that there has been word of mouth about Stitch Bank. So a few weeks ago, there was a talk, uh, a talk that was free for the public about the RSN Stitch Bank. And it was amazing watching people's comments kind of come through the chat and everybody saying, I'm going to bring this back to my guild. I'm going to talk to my friends about this. We got emails from New Zealand. It was you know, I love the networks of embroiderers and people who care about historical and contemporary embroidery because people really, it feels like we're all in this kind of beautifully tangled network. And that felt very clear in that RSN Stitch Bank talk. And I'm hoping it'll be the same case here that people will tell each other, you know, we will put the call out, we'll make the big announcement, but that people can spread the news and get in contact with us based on them being told from other people. And I'm sure that we'll also do some more of the online talks that link around pieces from the collection and mm-hmm. where where we have been able to make connections between things that we have um, as we come across them. Because, um, again, because so, so many things are held in separate boxes and, and hidden away, you know, we're, we're not necessarily aware of all the connections that, that we have even now. Mm. And so it will be great to uh, be able to get these things um, together uh, look at what, what we have and then to tell bigger stories because that will be the, the other aim will be not just to have the uh, objects um, on the website, but to pull out some elements so that we can tell um, a bigger story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, you know, we, we bring together half a dozen different pieces, but say what's the connection between them. Um, and I think that will be really interesting. Definitely. Yeah, that that's uh, what's sticking in my head is is what you guys are all the discoveries that lie ahead. Uh, just mm-hmm. by, uh, yeah, it's going to be endless. I'm sure. Sometimes when I get slightly daunted by how many objects there are in this collection, that is what it always fuels me is the potential for discovery and for you know recapturing the lives of these people who made these objects, whether they were making them 10 years ago or a thousand years ago. There's so much capacity here to tell stories about people and their work and how much, you know, they loved to stitch and the circumstances in which they did their stitching. Mm. There's, there's so much potential for infinite stories here. Oh yes. Yes. What I like about it too, is we're using this, you know, this ancient, you're using needle and the thread and, and fabric 
but you're taking that and putting it into the modern world, you know, this computer world where we can connect. It's easy to make um, connections with the, um, you know, with the stitch bank, with different mm-hmm. stitches, you know, um, where is it from? Um, you know, I, I know when I was homeschooling, the kids would get on a, on a, they look at one little thing and then all of a sudden we were off on a different tangent looking at, you know, maybe a country and their culture. And I, mm. I think that's what this will do too. It'll have, you know, you mentioned the India um, on the waist jacket, you know, okay, so let's look at that sort of India, the needlework from there. What was the um, their background? That's what starts going through my head and all the, the history that's going to be interconnected there. Yeah, I think my hope is that this is one part of people's ability to world build when it comes to kind of uh, under, deepening their understanding of historical and contemporary embroidery, that they can go to websites like the Met and the VNA and see all the stuff that's there and then fill in some gaps with the RSN collection and make comparisons between the Turkish sash that we have here and the Turkish sashes they have in the VNA and that this can be one really essential and important tool for somebody's journey through studying historical textiles and the contemporary stuff as well. Okay, this is the step too far. Do you see uh, integration or at least connection with uh, collections from the V&A and, and other institutions through this? Um, I, I think we would very much be separate collections. Okay. Um, and it's for the individual to kind of do the um, the movement between them. Um, but undoubtedly, in terms of what we have, there, there will be connections with pieces that are in the V&A. Um, but I think, for me, this is the RSN collection. Mm. And it's very important that it's here. And, and we still will make use of it, both in terms of having um, small exhibitions here of some of the pieces, possibly exhibitions elsewhere. And we're keen to have um, exhibitions around the UK and internationally with some of it, uh, and and also have it accessible for our our students. So at the end of the day, the RSN collection is a teaching collection, uh, and sometimes it's fascinating to be able to show the students different techniques and how they've been worked at different times uh, as they're starting um, on their on their. Uh, technical journey um so yeah it, it will still remain the rsn's collection and even though there's not any sort of formal integration with certain objects if we find that there are natural counterparts in other museum collections we make it a bit easy for you by writing in the description this is reminiscent of this piece that's in this collection and we give you an accession number so you can go off into the museum of london collection and find a Victorian burst that looks a lot like ours. So we are kind of putting that information out into the world so people can, can make those next steps and kind of look at all of the different websites and uh, make the natural connections that they would make. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just curious. That's all. (laughs) The, uh, I wonder about the volunteers, Mm. the, Mm. if they're going to be handling these pieces and, or they've been handling them. It's not if, uh, how much training they have to go through before they can start to to deal with these pieces? Is it extensive, they, or is there just some basics and they're good to go? They are handling all of the objects under my supervision, but that is only after they had a quite thorough training session or two. So we went through 
not only what the RSN is and what the project is and where everything is in this organization, but also we went through how to handle every type of textile, how to roll a textile, how to handle metal threads versus just a regular object without any metal threads, that you're wearing gloves in this situation, but not in this one. Um, we went through how to tag an object. We went through photography skills. We went through the cataloging system, and that is still something that, because the volunteers only come in once every two weeks, I, it's hard to get your head around this collections management system when you're not experiencing it every day. So there's stuff that they're still getting refreshers on, things that they're still learning. And if we come across an object or a type of, whether it's a type of object or a material or a set of information that they wouldn't have come across otherwise, we will go through that. We'll talk about how are you handling this 17th century Italian chasuble safely? Um, what box are we putting it in? Let's talk about how tissue is rolled in this situation. They got a thorough training session from me, um, but I would like to think that their their education continues. And I'm learning just as much as they are. I've worked in a lot of museums before, but I've never started the digitization and cataloging of a collection from, from scratch. I've never figured out what collections management system is right for an organization. I am learning as they are learning. And I'm hoping that what I'm learning, they can learn from as well. How many times can I say learn in a sentence? My goodness. <laughs> I counted 10, so you're good. Um. Yeah, so, thanks for holding me accountable. <laughs> no, well, that's, and that's interesting insight because, uh, yeah, I mean, this isn't something that you can just go to a book and say, here, here's how to do it step by step. Uh, so much of this is, I'm, I'm sure, fluid, hour to hour, day to day, and you just got to figure it out and make it work. And if it doesn't quite work, go back and change it again. Yeah. Yeah, it's all a learning process. And it's something that, you know, we need volunteers here and we're incredibly grateful for their support and their labor. But also I wanted to be able to have volunteers here because, for young people who are trying to get in the museum industry, um, it's incredibly hard to get experience handling objects. And it's hard to know how to handle objects until you get that experience. So I thought that this would be a really good opportunity for people who are curious about working with historical objects and maybe see a future in that for themselves to give them the opportunity to learn how to safely handle objects under the supervision of somebody who has been formally trained so they too can feel confident in those skills use them perhaps in future employment or volunteer roles or whatever and then pass on that knowledge to the next generation yeah all right boy this is exciting stuff i'll tell you between the stitch bank and this um <laughs> you guys are never, raising never a quiet moment gary you should know that <laughs> no i know but you're, i mean you're just raising the bar for needle workers everywhere and that's that's the exciting part. It's not just got to travel to London to participate. I mean, uh, this is doors opening everywhere for everyone. And uh, it's just so powerful on so many fronts. Yeah, we're, we're very keen to engage with more people and give them the opportunity to see what we've got, you know, because I get the opportunity so often to open a box and see some splendid things. And we really want to pass that on and enable more people just to see um, what we have here. Yeah. yeah, I think that one of the best things about embroidery, in my mind, is how universal it is. And I think that the RSN is doing such brilliant work to 
kind of uh, bank on and, and hone in on that universality to, to bring the embroidery to the people instead of the embroidery having, instead of the embroiderers having to desperately come to the embroidery themselves. I think that the RSN is doing a lot of work to make this information accessible. And I'm, I'm just truly thrilled to be involved because it really aligns with my mission in my own life to make this stuff as cool and relevant and publicly available as possible. Well, well, it, that's and that's I think the key is, and this isn't going to be the right word, but sitting there uh, in in uh, Hampton Court uh, in in rooms and boxes is almost wasted, and you guys are making it accessible all the mm -hmm. way around for everyone, and uh, you know so that incredibly valuable store of needlework is is now going to start paying dividends. It's, it's fantastic. Absolutely, because you're quite right that when it's in the box and nobody gets to see it, you know, that's that's not its purpose. Why are we holding on to it if it's just to be put in a box? <laughs> right. No, it is to get it out, to show it to people and um, for them to just see the wonders. And sometimes, you know, even even the bits that have got um, something awry on them where somebody hasn't quite got it right. They're as interesting uh, as the absolutely impeccable pieces. So and the unfinished pieces. Oh, we have quite a collection of those, um, and, um, particularly Jacobean cruel work, mm. which was, you know, usually made for large pieces for bed hangings and um, portieres. Uh, and there's quite a few of those that are not finished. Um, and it's to sort of inspire other people to say, you know, have a go and see what you can do. Um, and just look at what other people have done before. There is such, absolutely so much to inspire. Yes. And, and I think, too, you know, I was I taught my niece just recently how to do a little stitching and I showed her some of my pieces just briefly on my phone and she was just fascinated. And and now you're, you're putting all that online, you know, because how would you ever know it existed um, if you didn't have any exposure to it? And we can point people, young people to it and say, here, this is this is what embroidery looks like. It's It's this whole range. It's. You've, you've got all sorts of techniques to learn. Absolutely. Um, if you and and we, we take that forward with our family days and our um, a, a Stitch a Selfie project for schools um, to encourage um, students just to have a go. Um, but we can also um, make them, you know, drop their mouths in awe when uh, when we say to them, you know, how old are you? Oh, I'm 10. Oh, well, this piece was done by somebody who was 10. And, you know, right. like a map sampler. And they look at it and they go, you know, clearly thinking that they could never do anything like that. So, you know, to, to have, again, a, a, a proper respect for people who um, are from past generations um but had a had a different set of things that they focused on and of course as we know embroidery was one of the important ones um that they did from a very young age um so it's fascinating to see all of that and to then encourage the next generation to want to be and uh, to participate and to see what could be done and uh, as i'm always saying with just a needle and thread mm. right yeah. right right absolutely yeah all right, Susan, Isabella, thanks so much, and a huge applause, huge applause for this effort. I mean, this is just going to be uh, a huge plus throughout the entire uh, needlework community, so thank you so much for that, and thanks for uh, sharing all of this, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you so much for having us. This has been such a great time. I loved it. <laughs> thank you, Gary. Great thank to chat to you again. <laughs>